Good morning. We're glad that you're here to worship with us at Rivermont, and I invite you to turn in your Bible to Luke chapter 23. We're going to be looking at verses 26 through 43 together this morning. Last week we saw the pursuit of freedom and power through the eyes of three characters, through the eyes of Pilate and Barabbas and then Jesus. And yet only Jesus had true freedom. Only Jesus had true power, and he used it to save us. Today we're going to pick up the story after the verdict had been announced and Jesus was on his way to the cross. And even on his way to death, Jesus was dispensing his grace. Who was open to receive it? Luke 23, beginning in verse 26. And as they led him away, they seized one Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country and laid on him the cross to carry it behind Jesus. And there followed him a great multitude of the people and of women who were mourning and lamenting for him. But turning to them, Jesus said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us into the hills, cover us. For if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments. And the people stood by watching, but the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others, let him save himself, if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, then save yourself. There was also an inscription over him, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, Truly, I say to you, today you will be with me. In paradise. Let's pray together. Father, we ask that by the power of your Spirit you would open our eyes to see wonderful things, that we would know of the grace of salvation, the grace of the Lord Jesus, even in the shadow of the cross. We pray it all in Christ's name. Amen. I've said to you all before that reading the Bible is a cross cultural exercise. To truly understand and appreciate what the Bible says, it requires us to kind of get in the shoes of the culture to which it was first written. In order to understand what it means for us today, we have to understand what it meant to the first ones who heard it. And perhaps one of the clearest examples of this is when we're talking about the cross. The cross, for us, is a finely crafted piece of silver jewelry. Or it's a a hewn stone that's ornate in the British Isles, or a 
a beautifully painted wooden sculpture hung in the chancel of a church. Crosses decorate so much of our landscape that we've forgotten the horror of what it truly is. For in the Roman world, the cross was a symbol of the basest of humanity, the worst of humanity. It was an instrument of the cruelest execution imaginable in the Roman world. The act of of crucifixion was so brutal, in fact, that most pagans, most Gentiles, refused even to use the word crucifixion. Crucifixion in the ancient world was not only for punishment, especially of political crimes, but it also was a deterrent. It was so brutal that they used it as a means of intimidation to teach the lesson that crime doesn't pay. And the way that they did it is often on the main roads leading into the large cities, there were poles that stood for crucifixion already in place. And when a criminal was condemned, they would carry their cross, their, the cross beam, all the way through the city so everyone could see this guilty one. That beam was a heavy burden. They weighed most often more than a 100 pounds, and it was especially difficult to carry it after you've been beaten and flogged. Jesus was certainly in bad shape when he was called to the cross. He had been flogged severely using an instrument that has long leather tongs with pieces of bone and pieces of lead woven into the leather so that when it hits your flesh, it rips it off. Josephus, the Jewish historian, wrote that Jesus was flogged so severely that his bones were exposed. His insides were You could see them. He had been flogged so severely. All this was done in answer to prophecy, however. All this event that we read about today was the fulfillment of a prophecy written in Isaiah and others 700 years before. In Isaiah 52, verse 14, it says this, His appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any man and His form marred beyond human likeness was beaten and flogged even before he went to the cross. And then they put a crown of thorns upon his head, a a crown with thorns about two or three inches, and they pressed it down upon him. They put a robe on him and marched him throughout the city with a placard that said, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. They hurled insults at him. They mocked him, shouting, If you're king, save yourself. This also was in answer to prophecy. We read about it in Psalm 22, a messianic psalm, where it says, But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by men and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. And yet in the face of such a horrible scene, we find vignettes of grace. We find Jesus dispensing grace, offering, extending grace, even from that horrible place. You know that grace is a divine gift. It's the gift of life. It's the gift of forgiveness. It's the gift of salvation that is extended because of the character of our God. He is a gracious and kind and tender God. His grace isn't conditioned upon any goodness or any worthiness in our part. But instead, He's giving it to us because He is so gracious and tender toward you and me. But that grace does expect a return. That gift of life expects a return of faith and a, a return of trust, a return of a life laid down in service to this divine gift giver. Well, how do we see that grace extended from the shadow of the cross? 
Well, first of all, in this story, we see that grace intervenes in our lives. So we can't even say it invades our lives, and we see it in the story of Simon, a man from North Africa. It's modern-day Libya is where Simon was from. And he happened to be in the crowd that day. He had traveled to Jerusalem for some business, and he was in the crowd, and the soldiers grabbed him and impressed him into service to carry that, that cross beam, that beam that weighed more than 100 pounds. Now, some people see Simon being pressed into service as a metaphor for discipleship. He was following Jesus, carrying his cross. And yet, I think more to the point, Simon was bearing the weight of his own deserved condemnation by carrying an instrument of death. He was carrying the burden of his sin that only Jesus could lift when it was transferred to him. You see, Jesus died for the sins that we deserve to carry. Jesus took upon Himself our condemnation, just as with Simon. In verse 26, we see that the soldiers grabbed Him. They they pulled Simon in from the crowd. He had had His mind on His own business. And yet grace seized His life. Grace interrupted and intruded upon His life. Yes, I know that the seizure came at the hands of the soldiers. But there was a much greater plan at work. There was a greater purpose at work in the hands of the Lord. Why else would Luke and other gospel writers, especially Matthew, include this detail of Simon and where he came from? Well, it seems most New Testament scholars understand that Simon indeed became a follower of Christ. In Mark chapter 15, he lists Simon not only where he's from, but also Simon, the father of Alexander and Rufus. And the reason Mark gives that detail is because the family of Simon had become well-known among the believers by the time the Gospels were written. Simon's family came to trust in the Lord and they were known by the other believers. It's even possible that when Paul mentions Rufus in Romans chapter 16, verse 13, that Simon's son Rufus had become a leader in the church in Rome. You see, perhaps that walk on the Via Della Rosa became a path of salvation for Simon and for his family. The Lord does that sometimes. Perhaps He's even done it to you. You are going on your merry way and out of the blue, the Lord sovereignly lifts your feet from one path and He places you on another. He might invade your life with His purpose and and call you to something greater than you ever imagined that you were called to do. You You may not even be on the lookout for Him when He invades your life. And yet... He inserts Himself in. He calls you and He equips you for something greater. Sometimes He invades our lives through challenge. Sometimes He does it to encourage us. But always He comes with the purposes of grace, of His gift of salvation, His gift of life. Maybe that you're here this morning and you're not quite sure why you're here. There might be many reasons. People invited you, friends. Maybe you saw people on the street and you decided to come in and check out what's going on at Rivermont. There might be many reasons, but chief among them in the hands of the Lord is that you hear the gospel of the Lord Jesus. His hand is upon us, guiding us, guiding us where He calls us to go, sometimes even without our being aware of it. Grace invades our lives. We also see here in this story that grace calls us to face the brutal facts. We see it in verse 28 as Jesus addressed these daughters of Jerusalem. Such a a tender greeting to these women who were there. 
These women weren't most likely followers of Jesus who would have come from Galilee, but they were women of Jerusalem. These women were most likely professional mourners, women who would come out and mourn the death of yet another young man at the hands of the Romans. They did that then, and Middle Eastern women still do it today. They were compassionate, and they were tender with the Lord Jesus on this road to the cross. And imagine, even in his pain, even in his weakness, even in his distress of having been flogged to the point where his bones are visible, Jesus took the moment to address these tender women. He stopped to speak to them. Don't weep for me, he said in verse 28. And then he gave the reasons why in verses 29 and 30. There are quotations from Isaiah chapter 2 and Hosea chapter 10 where they point to the final judgment. Jesus points out to the prophecy to these women of the final judgment, the coming destruction of Jerusalem, the coming destruction of all the world, and the sweeping in of holiness. These tender women are there to speak to Jesus, and yet He talks to them about judgment. Why? Well, He's saying to them, just as He's saying to you and to me, don't weep over me as a condemned man, because you don't understand what's happening. You see me going to my death, but you fail to see that you are in exactly the same boat. Everyone is going to stand before the great throne of judgment one day. And if you're not ready, then it would be better for the mountains and the hills to cave in upon you. Jesus is saying in short that we don't, that until we understand our danger and our own death sentence, then we won't understand what He's doing for us on the cross. If we can't see ourselves as lost sinners deserving condemnation, then we're not going to grasp the magnitude of His gift to us upon the cross. You see, Jesus wants us to lay hold of just enough of the wrath of God, just enough of the judgment that's coming against our sin that we would run to Him for mercy. Until we hear the bad news of our need... The good news doesn't seem quite so good. The immediate answer to this prophecy happened in 70 A.D. when Jerusalem was indeed torn down, stone upon stone. Everything was ripped down in that city. It was horrible. Thousands of people died, and yet it was only a foretaste of judgment. The judgment that came on Jerusalem in 70 A.D. was but a picture A picture of a fuller judgment that's coming on the last day. Run to me for mercy, Jesus is saying. He says it again in verse 31 in in a proverb. It means this, that if the wrath of the Romans poured out on Jesus when he's innocent, when he's green, what will it be like when it's poured out on the city, when it's, it's guilty, when it's dry? Deeper still, what will God's wrath and judgment be like when it's poured out upon all the guilty? No one can withstand His holy judgment. It's sad that Jesus should die. But even worse would be our dying without knowing the purpose of the cross. Even worse would be our dying without knowing the forgiveness and the grace of the Lord Jesus. He calls us to face the brutal facts of our lives. That we are guilty. And we can't perpetuate the lie that we're pretty good people. We don't need all that much help from God. You and I are guilty, and it's a brutal fact that we deserve judgment, and we need a Savior. And He is that Savior for all of us who are willing to believe. 
is all that necessary? Why all this talk about judgment? I thought that we worshipped a God of love. Absolutely. We do worship a God of love. And yet we worship a God of love who takes our sin seriously. Would we really want to worship and love and adore a God who simply winks at sin and rebellion? Who is impotent to do anything about what harms and disfigures and even destroys His creation and you and me, His image bearers? Would we want to worship a God who is not able to deal with what harms us and destroys us and, and, and disfigures our lives? Of course not. We worship a God who loves us enough to take our sin seriously and then take the judgment for our sin upon Himself. We don't worship a God who is dispassionate in judgment, but a God who loves us so much that He takes the necessary judgment for sinners like us on Himself. What a God of love we have. We see it at play in verse 33. They marched him up to the place called the Skull. It was a hill outside the city of Jerusalem. There are a couple of potential sites for that hill in Jerusalem today. And once Simon got to that place, he would have dropped the crossbeam and Jesus' hands would have been nailed to that crossbeam. And then the soldiers would hoist up this crossbar with Jesus dangling from it. And then they would affix it to that standing pole. And then, as he's hanging there... They would have nailed his feet to the pole. What a brutal, brutal treatment. What a brutal judgment that you and I deserve. You see, Jesus was hung between the prisoners as a message. That he's just a common criminal. Just like these two thugs that are crucified beside him. And once again, you see the prophecy of Isaiah, chapter 53, lived out. He was numbered with the transgressors. He was numbered alongside them. He was judged alongside them. He's numbered with you and me, the guilty, that by His death, we might have life. But in order to lay hold of that life, we have to face the brutal facts that judgment is coming. And yet, by faith in what Jesus has done, He willingly took upon Himself our judgment that we might inherit His life. He went to the cross so that our evil wouldn't have the last word. So that the sin that is within us would no longer have the power to condemn. He went to the cross so that the brutal fact of our sin, our deserving of judgment, would be met with the full payment, a full pardon in His blood. He went to the cross so that you and I can stand without fear on that last day. Confident and the grace that is extended to us in the cross of the Lord Jesus. Thirdly, we see in this text that grace challenges our show-me attitude. We see it in the two criminals in verses 32 and 39. They, they cried out, if you're such a powerful king, even if you have this inscription on your head, then why don't you use some of that power to save yourself? Why don't you use some of that power to save us? Prove it to us. Missy and our family moved here from Missouri. And you may know that Missouri is called the Show Me State. The Show Me State is named as such for the trading that was done in the frontier days. They, and it's become a bit of a mantra. It's the state motto. You show me what you got and I'll believe you. You show me what you have and then I'll trust you. I think maybe this non-believing thief was from Missouri. 
He says, if you're the Christ, then save yourself. Prove yourself to me. Show me. If you have all this power, show it to me. Now, most of us, if not all of us, have prayed that prayer at some point. God, I'll know that you're there if you do this thing. If you're a God and you're there and you really are who you say you are, then this is how I'll know. You do this thing for me. And if you do this thing for me, then I'll follow you. You can earn my allegiance, God, if you do this thing that I'm asking you to do. Prove yourself to me. Show me. The issue with that thief's prayer and our prayer so often is that we pray that way because we're convinced we know what should happen. We know what is best. But God, if you're really there, then... I'll know that you're real if you get me out of this. But there's a huge assumption under that prayer, isn't there? The assumption is that you and I know what is best. That you and I are able to see what is best even better than God can see what is best. But neither you nor I can know those things. We attempt to strike these grand bargains with God. If you do this thing for me that I think is best, then I'll worship you. It's a show-me attitude. For the Lord, this thief said, if you get me out of this trouble, then I'll be with you. But the other, the other criminal, the repentant criminal, said, I'll keep this trouble that I deserve as long as I can be with you. One said, if you get me out of the trouble, then I'll follow you. The other one says, I'll keep my trouble as long as I have the blessing and the mercy of being with you. You see, this second thief knew that more than a revision of his awful circumstances, he needed a revision of his heart. He needed his self-interest displaced from the center of his heart. He needed a creator. He needed a redeemer at the center of his life that whatever is happening in his circumstances, it wasn't nearly as important as him having the Lord. You and I need the same. What's of utmost importance in your life? A change of your circumstances? Or having the Lord who may be at work in you and through those circumstances? You see, because grace is offered to us wherever we are. That second criminal knows that they're getting what they deserve, verse 41 says. They're receiving punishment for their own crimes. And he didn't have anything good to offer to Jesus as a basis for entering his kingdom. He tells us as such in verse 42. He doesn't say, remember my turning to you. Remember my prayer. Remember my request. He just says, Lord, have mercy on me. That's a posture of receiving grace. Jesus, I know who I am, and I know who you are. I know that I'm a sinner, deserving judgment, and I also know that you are a merciful, merciful Savior who takes the judgment of sinners like me. Would you please? It's the posture that says, Lord, I have problems of my own making, my own rebellion, my own sin, and you're the only one who's able to help me deal with them. I need your mercy. Grace is offered to us wherever we are. Who can tell what was the moment that this man's heart was moved from anger and ridicule and turned to faith and repentance? Matthew 27 tells us that they hurled insults. 
Both of these criminals, both of these thieves were, were hurling insults to Jesus up until a few minutes before they were dying. Both of them were railing on the Lord. Perhaps the Spirit changed this man's heart when he heard Jesus speak to these women. Perhaps when Jesus spoke of forgiveness for these soldiers who were simply following orders and yet their hearts were blinded by sin. Forgive them, he said. They don't know what they're doing. We're not sure when this man's heart was turned. But at some moment, the Spirit of God opened this criminal's heart to the truth that he's a sinner and he desperately needs the forgiveness that only Jesus can provide. It was literally the last moments of his earthly life in which he turned to the Lord and asked for forgiveness. And that's exactly what he received. He received the assurance of being with Jesus that very day in paradise. See, for you and for me, it doesn't matter if you are the worst person in the world. It doesn't matter if you have had sufficient time in your own mind to make it up to God. It's not necessary for us to clean up our lives before we come to Jesus. He's the one who does the work. As the old hymn, Come Ye Sinner, says, all the fitness He requires is to feel our need of Him. The Lord can save anyone at any time. Copernicus, the great scientist, prayed at the end of his life, I do not ask for the grace that you gave St. Paul, nor can I dare to ask for the grace that you gave to St. Peter. But the mercy which you did show to the dying robber, that mercy show to me. Both of these men cried out for salvation, and yet only one of them was saved. Why? Because one cried out in angry unbelief. Show me! And the other cried out in humble faith. Let me be with you. One looked to get out of his painful circumstances, and the other looked to be received in mercy. What is it that lies under your cries to the Lord? Jesus went to the cross that day. He went with us on His mind and His heart. He went to the cross in order to invade the hearts of sinners, to to intersect with our lives that are hopelessly lost in the grip of our sin and our rebellion without hope except for what He was going to do. Jesus went to that cross to enable us to face the brutal facts that we are condemned to judgment, and yet He will take it for us. He went to that cross to show us that His offer of grace isn't a negotiation. It's a rescue mission for people like us. And He went to prove that no one is too lost, that now is never too late to turn to the Lord for grace. May that grace given in the shadow of the cross lift your own heart, your own eyes, that you may live in hope today. Whatever the circumstances you may face, the Lord is willing and able to extend to you His grace and His tenderness. Ask Him for it. Let's pray. Father, we ask that You would be gracious to us as the tender Savior. Would You be merciful to us as You were merciful to that criminal crucified beside You? We thank You, Jesus, that one day in the new heavens and the new earth we will get to meet that man. What a blessing that will be. We thank You, Jesus, that You 
you invade our lives. Like Simon, you pluck our feet from one path and you place us upon another. We thank you that you show us that you are gracious and compassionate, although it's not a negotiation. You come to rescue us. And we thank you, Lord Jesus, that you love us so much that you have taken our judgment upon yourself. May we live as free people, free because the Lamb was slain for us. In Christ's name we ask it. Amen.